Civic Duty, Civic Duty. How's it going, Josh? How's it going? I hope you're doing well. I'm fucking hungover and tired. And I've got a lot of driving left to do. I gotta get to the border before it closes at 10 o'clock. And I am fucking running on fumes right now. I am having a hard time staying awake. Doing everything I can to fight this out. Maybe not everything I can. I don't know what else I can do. But maybe get some cocaine or something. I don't know. But fuck me. I am tired trying to get across the border. I might even have a little nap. I gotta stop thinking about sleep. I can't, I can't be thinking about sleep in this uh, state because it's, uh, it's really fucking with me because I uh, so badly want to sleep. But yes, like I said, we're not gonna think about it anymore because it's just making this situation even harder. So I really gotta just suck it up. Find a way to find a way to, uh, God, I feel like I'm going to throw up, too. Um, yeah, I got to find a way to get to that border because it's closing and I want to be stranded in the States until Monday morning, so fuck me. Just got to keep on keeping on, but oh, fuck, I am struggling. But hey, let's not talk about that. Let's, uh, talk about something else, just, uh, you know, you're using you to help keep me awake, keep me alive, hope you're okay with that, fuck man, this is not good, I drank a whole 20 ounce coffee, and, uh, yeah, that, uh, hasn't really worked. Well, I'm sure it has. I'm sure it's working well. But it's not working as well as I'd like it to. I'm trying to eat some figs to keep myself awake. But I don't know if I'm hungry or if um, or if I'm, it's the hangover. But I feel like I'm going to throw up right now. So hopefully I can fight that off. I really don't want to puke up all the coffee that I just drank because I need the I need the caffeine to kick in for me. But, oh fuck me! 
music, my music, and fucking rock out to it. Instead of this shitty version of Wagon Wheel. We were blessed to just have one child, 
had stage four endometriosis and did not think um, I could have children. In fact, I was diagnosed September 12, 2001. Everybody knows what happened September 11, 2001. To get that diagnosis the next day as the world was falling apart was pretty traumatic that there's a pretty good chance they said that I would not have children. And I was engaged at the time. Had you been trying to have children? No, I was engaged at the time and I'd had a lawyer pain and it was getting progressively worse over the years. I was passing out with pain. So they did um, an exploratory surgery and discovered the stage four endometriosis growing throughout my body and told me that it would be a very slim chance to have children. That had to really impact you. I mean, before you're even married to someone, you are realizing that the the gift that you want to give your husband is, is a child. Yes. So how did you, were you dating him at the time? We were engaged. This was in September of diagnosis. We became engaged that June prior. So we were planning a wedding, and then um, getting this news was, yeah, it caused some anxiety. But, you know, my husband, he's a very loving, patient person, and he walked with me through that, just trusting that God had a plan and that we would have a family one way or another. And we did. We were married that following May of 2002, and we're told that the best thing to do is try to become pregnant. We did have to get some fertility help and became pregnant with our first daughter in 2004, and then she was born in 2005. But she was our miracle baby. Yeah, I would say so right off the bat. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So you have this little girl and she is just precious and you have all all of her all of your attention is on her. Yeah. And then tell me what happened. Well, we started talking. Um, she was maybe a year and a half and we're like, Do we dare to even ask God for a sibling for her? She'd had some little play date, another child and we thought, Oh, it'd be nice to give her a sibling. Um, and Lydia was very bright from the beginning, and she was very talkative for barely even two, but has expressed wanting a baby sister. <laughs> so we would pray about getting a baby sister, and sometimes we joke now that she prayed too hard, because when we went through the process again, we were surprised that some of my numbers were elevated, which couldn't have been a problem, or twins, but we were told twins, that they saw two heartbeats on the ultrasound um, when I was between six and nine weeks, somewhere in between there. I can't remember exactly. They saw two. And one of them was significantly larger than the other, so they told me I could have something called vanishing twin syndrome, where one may absorb the other. So they said not to be surprised if that happened. So um, a couple weeks later, prior to my next visit, um, they were really monitoring me because it was high risk. And I'd had some spotting and thought, okay, this is it. We had absorbed, that one had been absorbed. So I went in, they did the ultrasound and the doctor said, no, they're both there. And then he swore out loud and said, there's a third one. <laughs> so I just remember sitting my head up 
going to have a heart attack. What those were my those were my words. And he just about did. <laughs> oh, I had to call him at work and give him that news. And then at twenty weeks, somewhere along that we were told they were all girls. We thought we'd get one boy out of that, but we we didn't. <laughs> yeah, well, you you had a great wish list to start with, so I, so most of it was applied to you. You know, I want to go back to the endometriosis. I want our listeners.
thank you for uh, making us part of your weekend. I do appreciate that as we uh, put the finishing touches oh. on another good one. Some Led Zeppelin now. This is oh. Houses of the Holy. Oh. I don't want to listen to Led Zeppelin.
on there's the event handles that we part of, part of that payment that we get for the event Fuck, is I went for a crack ace and spent nine afterwards. I just um, missed it. So anyway, you're in the lobby then, with, with the concessions area and, and then off to the right there's, a, there's the an area that they have for birthday parties and that's uh, where another Catholic And then they cracked one out at 910 um, and then there's a whole I thought it was going to be a somewhat of a setup inside Ball Bat Ball and I was going to try to go wide angle and she's got and that area is open when they're not having regular um, classes for gymnastics. So that is that is available to you. Sucks, but what are you gonna do? And then of course there's the area where the restrooms are and the freight room back in there. But if you walk straight forward, you're gonna walk into the commons, and you will see there's a row of stations there we have eight televisions up on the wall for gaming stations and then there's banners hung up on the walls and we're and there's banners hung in the windows as well and those are the banners of our sponsors in the community and uh, then you're in the commons there's a pool table we have air hockey we have two VR stations we do have a karaoke I think we have karaoke available if you want it um, uh, did I miss anything of this access channel on wealth inequality would accrue only with a considerable lag. I think he's saying a couple things here. I think he's saying that higher interest rates leave a lot of low in, lower income people out of the housing market. And obviously that matters because this prevents them from accessing a major vehicle for wealth creation that's buying a home. I think he's saying that the Fed's idea is that if you raise interest rates, the prices will come down and that lower prices help everybody, that that's not necessarily the case. And I think he's saying that the people who are left out stay out. So is that about right? I mean, it really is. It, it is clear. Um, but, you know, I want to make sure we don't lose sight of the major problem 
by which we begin, which is the capital in the first place to purchase the asset. So as a result of not having that capital, you have to finance a bigger portion of the home purchase and in the scenario as described by the author, when there's higher interest rates, the cost of financing of that purchase is higher. Mm. And what about this this argument that, that he's saying that people who are left out stay out? I think what he's saying is that people who are left out often stay out, and that really does have long-term consequences for wealth inequality. Do you think that that's true? I do think it's true, and again, I want to be careful that we don't lose sight of what the core issue is, which is capital to begin with, but yeah, nonetheless, there are things we can do to make the problem worse. Uh, continuing to raise interest rates to the point that not only do we overshoot our target of price stability, but we do it in a way where the interest rate, which is a blunt instrument, is not considering some of the distributional impacts such as the population that the author is talking about. The fact that uh, these low-income individuals now are pretty much locked out of the market because they can't get into it given how much it's going to cost to finance that home. So the issue of wealth inequality certainly isn't uh, new, but for the people who care about this, they've cared about this for a long time now. But is there something about this moment and the Fed's response to it that makes this moment particularly notable that you think we should focus on or think about? Yeah, I mean, we've made advances so that the Fed, at least in their rhetoric, it's starting to discuss uh, the impact distributionally kind of, time. of their actions. And what do I mean oh, by that? The impact on race, the impact on lower-income population. I, I don't think that's always been the case. Usually, it's been very high-level macro know. impact. Uh, However, rhetoric is not enough. Right, fine. I, I think the Fed has to consider actions that they can do to uh, soften some of the distributional blows of a contractionary monetary policy so that when they are not even in a contractionary monetary period even when they're in an expansionary monetary period that their actions are also consistent with their rhetoric and ensuring that they're creating new wealth providing mechanisms for people who have as the author described been locked out snuck up on me here all that said this is not the entire onus of the fed uh, but rather there needs to be fiscal policy oh, from the government side, the federal government side, that, also but... to promote oh, greater dude, access I'm to capital so that people can get into ownership of an asset. Shit. But okay. one thing is... Okay, you're coming with Oh, yeah. Oh, oh. Okay.
far away from the pump. Last week, the world marked a year since Russia launched its full-on assault on Ukraine. Okay, you can Except listen to the radio. It's also the day I'll nine years ago when Ukraine's Russian-backed president fled the country from Moscow following huge protests in Kyiv's Maidan Square. From Kyiv, NPR's Yulian Haida reports on the anniversary of Russia's first invasion and prelude to today's war. Nine years and some months ago, Kyiv's Independence Square, Maidan as locals call it, looked a lot like it does today. Eight lanes of traffic meet in a tangle of narrow medieval streets, acres upon acres of red brick sidewalks, abutting monumental granite buildings make pedestrians look like ants. Good to meet you. you. Likewise, yeah. This is where I meet Larissa Babi, a Ukrainian-American translator who's called Kyiv home since 2005. The area is surrounded by government buildings and high-end offices, a veritable power center in Ukraine. And that's exactly why, in November of 2013, Ukrainian activists chose this place to protest the decision by then-President Viktor Yanukovych to ditch a plan that would draw Ukraine closer to the European Union. Instead, Yanukovych wanted to move closer to Russia, Babi learned about the gathering on Facebook and told some of her friends. I'm going out to Maidan and it was like, it was a very like kind of unsure thing, but I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to go there. And I came and there was, you know, some dozens of people, maybe up to a couple hundred milling around. It was very quiet. For a week, she and others converged on the Maidan with a small but growing group of people. There were a lot of impromptu conversations between people and they talked about politics. Politics in a really fundamental way, like what are you doing here? What kind of a country do you want to live in? But as the crowds grew, so did the police presence. By the end of November, special- $12.12 12 a gas. <laughs> Men in helmets and armor overwhelmed the group, swinging batons. Nearly a hundred people were injured, mostly college students and journalists. But within days, as many as a half million more people gathered on the square. I was there too, and back then I asked student protester Anastasia Kriviak why so many had suddenly showed up. People of all ages are standing here to make sure that the government just doesn't beat people, she said. That is our right. There's a threshold of abuse that is just simply too much, and they hit the streets and they demand change. That's Terrell Germain Starr, a political analyst right. who moved to Kyiv a few years before. He says the government's attempts to clear the area turned more and more violent over the following weeks and months, and the protests became entrenched. The movement wasn't Regina so much about East-West politics anymore. It's one Don't thing think that that's we're not going to look to the thing to. to see your child being beaten mercilessly and people die. By February, nine years ago, the cycle of resistance and repression grew so violent that snipers shot and killed over 100 protesters on the Maidan. Today, Larissa Babi and I retraced the steps of those protesters as they marched on parliament and directly into sniper fire. The Maidan, like, it yeah. was meant to, we don't know exactly what it was meant to, but it toppled the government. Parliament voted to remove Yanukovych from office. And on February 24th, he fled Ukraine to Russia. 
in quick succession, Russia occupied parts of Ukraine. The victory made Putin realize that he can no longer um, control Ukraine via puppet regime. That's Sophia Wilson, a political scientist at Southern Illinois University. Oh, Divided Highway. Has a forthcoming for, book on the movement's legacy. That's unfortunate. Legacy. I really liked it when I was on Divided Highway. Oh, well. Since Maidan, entire government agencies were replaced. All of the country's cops were fired in a bid to end police brutality. For Lenis of Abi, though, the Maidan is still unfinished business. If you look at how Ukraine is defending itself today and has been defending itself for the past year, that defense actually gives this Maidan meaning. Had Ukraine capitulated in February, March of last year, this Maidan would have been like a little, you know, a little spark. But Ukraine did not capitulate, and Maidan's meaning endures. Yulia Maidan, NPR News, Kyiv. Morning edition, a study of how apps like Instagram and TikTok affect the self-image of teenagers. Researchers asked teens to take a break from scrolling through social media. After just three weeks of reduced screen time, they reported feeling better about their looks and their bodies. Listen to Morning Edition tomorrow on your phone, your smart speaker, or just turn on your radio. Listening to NPR News. This week, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in two cases that will affect the financial lives of millions of Americans. They are two separate challenges to President Biden's plan to cancel at least $10,000 in federal student loan debt for most borrowers. NPR's Corey Turner is here with us to tell us more. Corey, thanks so much for joining us. You bet, Michelle. So what are we likely to hear this week? Well, let's start with the biggest question. It's really at the heart of both of these cases, and that is, does the Biden administration have the legal power to erase student loan debts for tens of millions of Americans? Obviously, the Biden administration says yes, and their justification is a law known as the HEROES Act. So the HEROES Act was passed after the attacks of 9-11, and it specifically gives the education secretary the legal authority to basically waive or change the rules around the student loan program to help borrowers during a national emergency. And the administration is arguing, look, COVID was a national emergency that devastated the finances of many student loan borrowers. And it says broad forgiveness is a joke. Sorry. Christian music, I think. Come tumbling down in the wall. Come tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. Come tumbling down. Tumbling, 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 tumbling. Wall. Come tumbling, tumbling. Come tumbling down. Tumbling, tumbling down.
yeah. Pat Benatar, I think.
underestimate the power of a lullaby even if you can't carry it too. A study by researchers at Penn State University College of Medicine supports uh, what many parents instinctively know. Singing and talking to your sick kiddo makes them feel a whole lot better. Introducing Total by Verizon, a new prepaid wireless provider with no contract plans starting at just $30 a month. With Total by Verizon, you don't have to sacrifice reliability or freedom. Get Total by Verizon and save money every month on America's most reliable 5G network. Most reliable 5G... Well, and the wind gusting at about probably forty-five miles per hour. Maybe a few showers early on Monday, See? but clearing up during the midday and afternoon hours. It'll stay windy and are high in the low thirties. Mix of sun and clouds in upper twenties Tuesday. I'm meteorologist Steve Hamilton, and that's your forecast on the mix one hundred five point seven. Searching for Britain's Richard III. I'd like to visit his grave. There's more. There's mortal remains are lost to history. I know I can find him. Also, Chevalier, the story of a black 18th century composer who charmed Marie Antoinette, but not the court. Any other country, man of your color would not be wearing such fine clothes. One day, the whole world will know me. And of course, the music will be spectacular. Two centuries later, as the film Spinning Gold chronicles, the place to find music you'd call spectacular was Casablanca Records, which had contacts with... Yes, the Isley Brothers, Gladys Knight, Parliament, Bill Withers, Donna Summer. They legally changed my name. No! Everything is hotter in summer. There's also a biopic about the rise and fall and rise of heavyweight champion George Foreman. Last time they saw me, I looked like Superman. 
those words and some of those phrases and thoughts, feelings and ideas start to creep into my somewhere. It wasn't something
Well...